While at Embry-Riddle, where I earned a bachelor's and master's degree, I learned so much about commercial aviation. This was common for aeronautical science majors, but the business and government sectors were truly a mystery to me. It wasn't until I attended my first National Business Aviation Association NBAA-based conference in Orlando that I discovered business aviation. I was shocked to see the massive conference hall and how it was filled up with booths and thousands of people from around the world who were passionately dedicated to the sector. After the conference, I made it a point to educate and immerse myself in the entire aviation ecosystem. And the DreamStore Global Flight certainly helped with this. While flying around the world through our partnership with ICAO and the FAA, I had the opportunity to connect and collaborate with several international aviation government agencies who welcomed me into their countries. This opened my eyes to the complexities of the government sector and the great career opportunities in demand. Here are a few examples of those careers. Aviation Safety Inspector, Aviation Management Specialist, Aviation Analyst, Airport Planner, Aviation Economist, Aviation Policy Advisor, and Unmanned Aircraft System Specialist. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Atlantic Aviation. Atlantic Aviation provides aircraft ground support in over 100 FBOs across North America, including locations in Hawaii and the Caribbean. I am proud to be partnered with a company that puts their people first and highly values diversity and inclusion. Atlantic Aviation's vision and mission is evident through the relentless focus on culture, safety, and service. Experience the Atlantic attitude today. Check out www.atlanticaviation.com to see all 100 plus locations and plan your next visit. When I launched the Aviate with Shasta podcast, it was a priority to find women in government who could talk about their career journey and the impact that they have had on our industry. In my research, I came across the first woman to serve as the FAA Acting Administrator, Linda Hall Daschel. Until recently, a very kind and supportive aviation leader introduced me to Linda, and I am so grateful to him. Linda, a Kansas native, is a prominent public policy and government affairs figure. Dashiell has served as a senior executive at several leading organizations and was actively involved in their government relations strategies. After 20 years of working in the aviation industry, Linda was nominated by President Bill Clinton and confirmed by the U.S. Senate as Deputy Administrator to the FAA. Dashiell became the first woman to serve as the FAA Acting Administrator three years later. In addition to her work in government affairs, Linda is also a sought-after speaker and has participated in numerous conferences and forums, sharing her insights and expertise on various policy issues. She's known for her ability to communicate complex concepts clearly and compellingly, making her a respected voice 
in the policy arena. Linda, welcome. Linda Hall Dashel, welcome to the Aviate with Shasta podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. And it's such an honor for me to be on your podcast. I grew up in Kansas, as you might not know or know, but I was so in awe with Amelia Earhart as a young child. And later in life, I had this opportunity to meet Linda Finch, who flew successfully around the world in 1997 in the same type of aircraft that Amelia Earhart flew. And then here it is, 26 years later, I'm getting to meet another incredible female, you, who flew around the world and did it in a single engine aircraft. That's such an amazing achievement, Shasta. So it's really an honor for me to be with you today. You're so kind, Linda. Thank you for for joining us. So let's get to know you a little bit better, Linda. If you can take us back to, you know, you talked about where you grew up, but where what was one of your most fondest childhood memories? Well, so I was I was born my father, who I will tell you, you know, you don't you don't get to pick your parents when you come into this world. But I feel like I won the lottery with mine. My father was an aircraft mechanic when I was born, but he later became a minister, but he never, ever lost that passion that he had for aviation. So I always remember that we had toy aircraft to assemble. And again, this is long before Legos. And my brother and I would have all of these aircraft hanging by a thread from our ceiling. And so it's, In many ways, you know, I give my father a lot of credit for an early interest in aviation, but I also, I want to give credit to my mother because she was a social worker and between the two of them, they were foster parents to over 30 children. And they just, you know, they really taught me a sense of giving and caring and respect and I you know, I benefited so much from just thinking about the example that my parents set for me. But again, I think that, you know, one of those favorite little childhood memories is of all of the toy aircraft hanging from the ceiling. Did you ever at any point want to become a pilot, maybe like an airline pilot or military? I actually, I did take some flying lessons. So i I will say that my first real introduction to an aviation career came while I was attending Kansas State University. I needed a job. And my father, once again, he knew someone who was working at the nearby FAA facility. At that time, it was a flight service station. And, you know, again, we're talking about almost 50 years ago. So as you as a pilot, no, we don't really have flight service stations, except perhaps in Alaska, and they're pretty much automated these days. But anyway, he got me this job, and I will say my first week into it, it was like I knew this is what I, I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And so I did take some lessons. Even then, 50 years ago, it was pretty expensive. And I've I have to say I became more fascinated with air traffic control and essentially everything about the FAA. It, it, it just, you know, I, I 
I learned so much just from that part-time position that I had. And perhaps we'll talk a little bit more about the FAA, but I think it's an incredible agency. And I was just really fortunate to be introduced to it at such a young age. Well, we'll definitely dive into your time at the FAA. You know, what I find so interesting is that there's this misconception that if you're a pilot, it's, it is a very technical hands-on job, but there's this misconception that you have to be somewhat of a tomboy um, to do the job. And when I was reading your biography and just kind of preparing for this interview, I read that in 1976, you were crowned Miss Kansas. And this really stood out to me and I didn't expect it. But growing up with five sisters, I naturally have a very feminine side to my to me. But on the other hand, I'm also a pilot and enjoy getting my hands dirty. What inspired you to pursue this opportunity? Well, it was a it was a different time. 50, almost 50 years ago. At the time, the Miss America pageant was the single largest scholarship for women. And again, I needed money for college. And one of my best friends had been Miss Kansas and encouraged me to do it. And somehow I won, which is still amazing to me. But I will tell you that traveling, I think almost 30,000 miles one year across Kansas, attending Chamber of Commerce events, county fairs, parades, rodeos. And again, this was during the country's bicentennial. So everyone was having a bicentennial event. I had a lot of fun. I learned a lot. And I will say it, it you know, it definitely helped me gain confidence. And I was 20, 21 years old. And at the same time, I was working at this FAA facility. So yeah, it was it was a great year chapter in my life. I'm not so sure, you know, I would be encouraging someone to do it today. I think it was much different 50 years ago, but yeah, it was a great experience. Yeah, no, it definitely sounds like it. And the more that I'm watching the pageants nowadays, I find that there's just a lot of intelligent women that are using it for a platform to bring change or bring attention to certain causes that they're passionate about. But I just found that so interesting in your bio. And I wanted to ask you. So so Linda, now I would love to really talk to you about your career as well as other careers that maybe women in aviation or just women in general don't know exist, especially in the government. So as you mentioned earlier, your first aviation job was working at an FAA flight service station while attending Kansas State University. Later, you joined the Civil Aeronautics Board as Deputy Regional Director and then Regional Director in their Kansas City office. You were eventually transferred to Washington, D.C. and promoted to the head of the agency's Congressional and Consumer Affairs Office. In 1993, you were notably nominated by President Bill Clinton and confirmed by the U.S. Senate as Deputy Administrator of the Federal Aviation Administration. And in 1996, you made history by becoming the first woman to serve as the FAA acting administrator. Linda, I would love to ask you, you know, what motivated you to pursue a career in government, specifically aviation? So, again, I think my, you know, my introduction to working in the federal government was so by chance, needing a job, paying for college, 
finding a position at the FAA. But I will say that the time that I spent at the Civil Aeronautics Board and at the FAA, I saw firsthand how interconnected the federal government is with aviation. I mean, you as a pilot, you know, you can't fly without an FAA-approved license. The aircraft that you fly in has to have an FAA-approved airworthiness certificate. If you're taking off from a commercial airport, you can't take off until an FAA air traffic controller gives you approval. And the FAA is unique among federal agencies because when you think about it, particularly as it relates to air traffic control, it's operating every second, every hour, every day, 365 days a year. And it's doing a pretty amazing job, even though I am one who believes that their technology could be far better. But I've, I've always been so impressed with the air traffic controllers that I have met, as well as, you know, the other FAA employees who are involved in formulating the policies that have really helped us. And I give the, I give the industry a lot of credit in this regard as well but to achieve this incredible safety record that we have today. When I was at the FAA, it, it was a, a challenging time. We had several very tragic accidents. We had TWA 800. We had the value jet accident. We had several commuter accidents. What came out of all of that that I'm very proud of were a number of new safety initiatives. And I like to think that from the time that I was there, that from those safety initiatives that were largely implemented by the industry with FAA's guidance, you know, again, we have this safety record that is, it's the envy of the world. You know, Linda, one thing that stood out to me is in when I was doing my master's degree, I did some research on TWA 800. And this was back in I think 1996, when I read how the NTSB came together to really re-simulate the whole flight based on the records that they had. They were so precise in the sense that the aircraft came from Greece and it was going to Charles de Gaulle. They imported the same fuel from Greece to really make sure that they captured the whole experience and they were very thorough. I remember reading that and thinking, wow, this is the work of our are of the FAA, just the amount of attention and detail that they put into investigating that flight, it really it surprised me in so many ways, but that's something that we as pilots or just folks who are working in the industry, we don't realize all that the FAA does and the amount of time and resources that they dedicate to just ensuring that everything we do, this industry is safe. It's really incredible. So I thought of that, as you mentioned, the safety standards. Yeah, well, it may it may be TWA 800 that you were referencing. And, and I do want to give a lot of credit to the National Transportation Safety Board, which is another federal agency that I highly recommend if someone is interested in being a part of, you know, safekeeper of the skies and, you know, being involved in public policy as you not only, you know, solve what caused an accident, which is the NTSB's role, 
But one of the initiatives that, again, I'm proud of is what are we doing to prevent the next one? And a lot of that requires industry talking to the FAA and talking to the FAA without necessarily being concerned about receiving a penalty. You want you want the industry, whether it's airlines, whether it's pilots, maintenance technicians, to come to the agency and say, here is the problem, or here is the mistake I made. I've self-corrected it. And for that, I, I've always felt like there should not be a penalty, but rather we've all learned from that. And our, if we're seeing that repeat mistake, that's, you know, that's an indication that perhaps we need to revisit the regulations. But a lot of the regulations, as, as you may know, Shasta, really come from working with the industry and trying to determine what do, you, what do we do to make sure that we prevent the next accident. You know, Linda, I, I'm also kind of thinking about just the role that women play in aviation throughout the years. It, it has been a flatline growth in terms of just the amount of pilots, mechanics and seat seat executives. I want to ask you this question for the women. So as I mentioned in 1996, you were the first woman to serve as the FAA acting administrator. And I'm curious to know, did you encounter any pushback because you were a woman appointed for a role that is traditionally held by men? You know, when I think back to every job that I had, the decision for placing me in that job was made by a man. I do think that that's changing it's much slower than what I would like. And I think you would agree with that. But I have to say that I was really fortunate that the men, the individuals I worked with brought me in under their wing, became mentors. When I went to the FAA as deputy administrator, I, <laughs> I was pretty vocal about I, I don't want to be perceived as a diversity candidate. I may be the first, but but I and and that's, you know, that's great that we're bringing women into the, you know, these positions, but but I didn't want to just be there as, you know, a a yeah, a, a symbol or, you know, just take the stage and be introduced and and then that's kind of it. Give, you know, nice remarks. So the administrator at the time, David Henson, who has become a very dear friend, took me up on that and gave me <laughs> an assignment within the first 30 days, which was to try to determine why one of the largest federal contracts, definitely the FAA's largest contract, contract to modernize their traffic control, was behind schedule and almost too billion dollars over budget. And what were the risks if FAA continued to stay, you know, with this program? And we ended up, um, and I had a fabulous team of individuals who helped shape a recommendation that we should cancel this contract, which I think shook everyone, industry, Congress, even within the FAA, that we would actually cancel a, a, a huge federal contract to modernize air traffic control. 
And we did. So I think, you know, it set an example that I was going to be very involved, very engaged. And I, yeah, I, I think, you know, it, it helped me for the next four years to, you know, to show that I was serious about getting results. So you mentioned the modernization program of the whole air traffic control system. We are entering a new dawn in air traffic management with innovations like drones, urban air mobility, regional air mobility, spaceflight, and so much more. What are you most excited about having gone through the past experiences that you did as the FAA acting administrator? Well, all of all of the new activities that you've mentioned, although, you know, drones, commercial space have have been around for a while. In fact, when I was at the agency in the 90s, commercial space became a new office at the FAA. And and I will say it seems somewhat like a pipe dream that someday we were going to have all these commercial space launches. And here we are. It seems like we're having them weekly, which is pretty amazing. So I'm very excited. I also look at this point in time as another significant challenge for the FAA because they need to come up with the rules of engagement. How do you integrate into the national, you know, airspace system? How do you do it safely? What's the operational concept going to look like? And, you know, one of the things that concerns me is about just the funding that our U.S. Congress provides to the FAA. The good news is we as users of the system pretty much pay for our way and it all goes into this trust fund. We don't always get that money back out of the trust fund, the federal trust fund. But as we look at all of the new entrants, the question also is what kind of demand are they putting upon the FAA? And are they also contributing to help defray the cost? So I think with the work that particularly this year is happening in the Congress with what we call the FAA reauthorization, which usually occurs every four or five years. And it's a very important piece of legislation because it literally says FAA, here's what you need to do, or FAA, here's what you cannot do, as well as with the federal appropriations. I think we're going to we're going to see a lot more policy debate about the integration of these new entrants. And I think it, it definitely needs to happen. And, in, in, you know, in, in some ways, we're a little bit behind as it relates to integrating drones with the advanced, you know, mobility aircraft, you know, it sounds like they want to try to be certified next year and be in operations by 2025. That's, but that's not very far away. So there's a lot of work to be done, but I'm excited about it. And I think, you know, it's, who knew, you know, even 25 years ago when I was at the agency that we would be, you know, talking about something called drones and flying taxis. Right, right. You know, you have so much knowledge just working, the work that you've done, not only in the public sector, but as well as the private sector. And I'd love just to learn from you, what are some exciting aviation careers, specifically government, because I feel like we don't hear a lot about them. 
career opportunities that are out there and are, are growing and that you would want to briefly talk about and just inform our audience on? I'm so glad you asked that question because the FAA is hiring. And that may also be true for the National Transportation Safety Board. I'm, I'm less familiar with with what they're doing. But if I recall, I think that they're also looking for more employees. So with the FAA, there's a lot of helpful information on their website. It's FAA.gov. And just enter in jobs into the search and you know, it's going to pop up jobs that are available across the country. I mean, we're not talking about just having to come to Washington, D.C., where the FAA is headquartered. And it'll also, you know, it'll give you the requirements as it relates to air traffic control or a maintenance technician. But I think the FAA is also looking for individuals and hopefully women who want to be involved in the research and the analytical work of activities like we just mentioned, integrating drones, integrating, you know, advanced aircraft mobility, AAM, as well as continuing to try to figure out how do we integrate commercial space launches so that it is less disruptive to the rest of the users in the system? Because as you may know, I mean, FAA closes off a large area of airspace for every launch. And that means flights have to get diverted out of that restricted airspace. And if you're on, you know, a commercial airline, that usually results in a delay or a misconnection. And how do you start minimizing that type of disruption to the system. And so that's also work that is underway. So I would definitely encourage any listener that might be interested in working at the FAA to go to their website. Again, FAA.gov. Uh, Linda, so you also mentioned previously the FAA reauthorization bill. And I know that the FAA, they launched a very special advisory board, the Women in Aviation Advisory Board, to really look into why women are not coming into the industry, what's holding them back. And I kind of mentioned these numbers earlier, but I'll give you some specifics. So in terms of women in aviation, uh, there has been a flatline growth in sectors like commercial airline pilots, which is 4% in the United States. Aviation mechanics, which is just under 3%, are women. Within the government, specifically the FAA, 35% of the employees are women. And when you just look across the board, C-suite executives, with your experience and expertise, what do you think is holding back women from pursuing these careers? First of all, I really want to commend the individuals, the women that served on that important commission and the report that they produced. And I hope that that report doesn't just lie on somebody's shelf, that the FAA administrator, as well as the president of the United States, as well as members of Congress will really take heed to what was recommended. When I boil this down to three simple things that I, I hope will be helpful 
to getting more women into our industry, it would be one, exposing girls to aviation and aerospace. You're doing that. I, other than the story of Amelia Earhart, I can't say that I really learned a lot about aviation as a child growing up in Kansas. Two is each of us take time to be a mentor, whether it's having coffee, it's having a chat, whatever it is, take time to see if your network in some ways can benefit placing a woman or helping a woman transition through an aviation career. And then three is assisting with financing for whatever technical training or education that that woman, you know, needs to be able to be successful. And again, Shasta, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you're doing in that regard, because I think that's, that's something that, you know, whether we can get Congress to allow 529 college funds to be used for getting your pilot's license, getting your, you know, maintenance technician degree. I mean, those, those sources of, you know, financial support is just hugely important. College is expensive, as you know. So tell me a little bit more about Dream Store because it sounds like, again, that's that's going to be critically helpful. Yeah, thank you, Linda. You know, with Dream Store, when we launched the global flight around the world, it was so powerful because I had the opportunity to meet with three thousand children from over twenty-two countries and. It wasn't just me on the stage talking about aviation careers. It was interacting with them face to face, shaking their hands and, you know, them asking me real questions about the whole flight, about careers in aviation. And for the most part, I found that, you know, it's it's relatively easy to inspire the youth. Dreamstore went on to host or participate in over 60 outreach events around the world. We've met with over 25,000 young people and we, we we thought a lot about, you know, how can we have an impact like the flight did going around the world, but really empower the youth. And so we put our heads, heads together. And for two years, we built the concept of a, building a digital hub, because I think right now aviation is perceived as this really small, tight knit uh, almost like a boys club community and it just seems so far away and out of reach. And what we want to do is make aviation more accessible by building a hub where no matter where you are in the United States, if you have an interest in aviation, all you need is a, a device and internet to go and discover over eight. So according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, there's over 860 aviation careers. So really be able to immerse yourself into the aviation ecosystem and discover what's out there. And then once the youth has figured out what they want to do, being able to enroll in a bridge program to uh, pursue that career path. And then along the way, you know, as a college student, I struggled a lot with financial aid and finding mentors. So we want to bring those resources onto the hub to really empower young people to, to pursue aviation as a career, um, but also to feel like they have a sense of community to, to support them. So that's just a little bit about what we're doing with DreamSoar. Uh, I mean, that is so fantastic. It, it is it's badly needed, 
and I wish you the very best of success with it and hope that I can help in, in any way possible. Thank you, Linda. Well, thank you for asking me. Usually I'm the one asking the questions. <laughs> so that, that was great. You know, Linda, since we're on the topic of the youth and inspiring and empowering them, what would you say are some specific skill sets that you would, incur- you would encourage the youth to consider as they build their career to work in the government? Well, one, it's, you know, a, a sense of serving. Most likely you're not going to make as much money as you would if you were in the private sector. But if you, you know, if you have this sense of wanting to give back and and serving and being a part of the safekeepers of the sky, as I call the FAA employees, I think taking an interest in how government works you know, most universities are going to have public policy courses that I think can be very helpful. So you really understand the path that a regulation or piece of legislation takes from, you know, beginning to final decision. I also encourage people to, you know, to just do some research to see if there are internships locally whether it be at an FAA facility or even at your airport. They may not be paid positions, internships, or or internships here in Washington at the FAA or with the Congress. I think just having that introduction, like I did when I was in college, can be very helpful. And hopefully will encourage more people to seek public service as a career in aviation. I think that those are all very helpful tips. And so in addition to hosting this podcast, which is specifically for women in aviation, I also host a dream store podcast called Uplink. And I'm one of the co-hosts for Uplink. And the purpose of that podcast is there's so much happening in aviation all the time. And I remember certainly when I was younger, I would always ask, how does this relate to me? So we try to take the top aviation news and break it down in a way that is just more consumable and relatable for the youth in aviation. And in one of the episodes, we discussed the search for an FAA administrator. After the episode was publicly shared, a young woman reached out to me and asked, how does one become an FAA administrator? And I didn't know how to answer that question. So I'd love to hear from you. What is your advice to the youth who aspire to be an FAA administrator in the future? Well, an FAA administrator is nominated by the U.S. president. It is a position that requires the individual to have aviation experience. Doesn't, you know, say how many years. It doesn't require you to be a pilot, although I think being a pilot will serve you very well at the agency. And you go through a pretty significant background check. The FBI conducts the background check. Eventually, you are going to have a security clearance because you will have access to national security information as it relates to aviation. Once you're nominated, and again, that can take some time, as we are seeing right now with the current situation at the FAA, 
it then has to go before the United States Senate and they have to approve the president's nomination and they do their own background check. And, you know, for the most part, I would say that the FAA administrator has not been politicized. It's not been, you know, a, a, a political position where you had to be a Democrat, you had to be a Republican, or you had to, you know, even as an independent, you didn't have to necessarily have this political background. It was more related to experience. I, I hope that it will always be that way. If we have to strengthen the law to say that aviation experience is even more important to selecting an FAA administrator, then perhaps we need to do that. Because when you walk into the agency, even as I did with almost 20 years of experience, and I think if you've surveyed most previous administrators and deputy administrators, they would tell you that you're going to learn. You're going to learn a lot more. You think you may know something, but particularly in the area of air traffic control, it's you know, it's your it's your largest organization with 14,000 employees. I mean, the FAA has over, I think, 45,000 employees. And you just have a lot of challenges with running a very complex technology dependent system 24 hours every day without, you know, having it break down or, you know, having glitches like we recently had with NODAMPS. So I, I'm hopeful that, you know, we, we see more women be FAA administrator. And I will say that we've had two fabulous female FAA administrators, Jane Garvey and Marion Blakey. Both of them had experience. Marion came from the NTSB. Jane had run Boston Logan Airport. Neither were pilots, but I think if you ask anyone, they would say their tenure at the FAA was very successful. A lot of positive change occurred. And you know what I love about it, it is that they came one after another. It was first Jane and then Marianne. And, you know, it would have been so great to have seen kind of more of a domino effect. Yeah. But of course, it is what it is. <laughs> Linda, it's been so incredible to sit down with you to talk about your just very powerful, strong leadership within the FAA, the work that you've done in our industry, and just being a strong female leader. I'm really inspired. And I'm so grateful that you made the time to come and share your stories and your advice with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Again, it's my honor. And if I can be of any help to any female that is listening, that is wanting to pursue or an aviation career or, or is already in one but wants to make some kind of change, please, I, I would love to help. But I'm, I, I so commend you, Shasta, for what you are doing. And it gives me great hope that, you know, the younger generation understands that we all need to give back and spend as much time as possible to help more women come into our business. Linda, with that, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you.